We have a couple of friends back there visiting from, well, not fully the Netherlands, the father from the Netherlands, and the son is in school up in the Detroit area, and so they're down visiting, and uh, so say hello to them after. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your blessing on this word. Give us understanding, Lord. Prepare our hearts and help us to prepare them for you. In the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. I want to share on something that is just so important in genuine revival. And uh, I want to look at Holy Spirit conviction. And this is what we're also going to be concentrating on when we pray tonight, that God would come in power to convict. And uh, I have seen it, I have experienced it, I know what it is to be gripped by the conviction of God, and it can disturb you, it can shake you, and it can be absolutely beautiful at the same time. Because he's doing a purifying, and it's there's nothing like it when the conviction of God is so heavy that you see unsaved people running to Jesus, backsliders coming home. Nothing like it. It's just absolutely wonderful. But that means we have to welcome the Holy Spirit. We have to embrace him. We have to allow him to come into our midst and allow him to do what he does. You see, he'll only come if he's allowed to be Lord. If, he, if we allow him to do what he does, and there's a few different things that he does. We can look at it in Scripture and see. Uh, one of it that we'll, I'll touch on just in a couple of minutes is that he is, uh, was sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. So the very, one of the very purposes of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Anybody that has conviction, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in a Christian life or a non-Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit that's bringing that conviction. Of course, the Holy Spirit is there to sanctify the believer, and um, and uh, I would say, I don't want to say the greatest thing, but uh, ultimately, he's there to glorify Jesus. So when the Spirit of God is moving, when he's really moving, he's always going to glorify Christ and what Jesus did on the cross, that there's salvation to him and that his blood uh, brings forgiveness. I just want to begin with a couple of definitions, and so we are all on the same page, and I'll just be simple with this and, and that there, but I want us to understand uh, what conviction is, to convict or conviction. And of course, how dictionaries like to uh, word things, it's kind of like, okay, that's what the word says, what you're saying, it just says that. So anyway, the to, conviction is the state of being convicted. Okay, that didn't help me. You know, God, come on, give me something of substance here, you know. But it's to prove or declare the guilt of an offense. Okay, so that's what conviction is all about. It is about, about convincing a person of their guilt. And, you know, the world doesn't say guilt is a good thing. They, they try and do everything they can to get rid of guilt. You know, give you drugs, whatever, you know, just try and talk you out of it or say it's not your responsibility and, you know, so you're a drug addict or alcoholic or, you know, wife abuser or whatever because of, you know, your upbringing or whatever. I mean, uh, but the Holy Spirit brings guilt, which is a gift from God. It's a gift to mankind. And uh, it just exposes how we have offended God, how we have broke His laws, how we have, have done that which is hostile to Him. It is to impress with force that sense of guilt. So when you think of it, the more the Holy Spirit is revealed, the greater the forces of that conviction. 
Because when a holy God shows up, the more he reveals his holiness, the more that holiness is going to do what it does. That holiness is going to expose what is unholy, what is evil, what is corrupt, what is hostile to him. It's just going to be the process of it. When you look at the history of revival, you can see revivals where the conviction was tremendous. And I'll share a couple of accounts uh, this evening. But, uh, you know, the more the Holy Spirit is there doing the work he was sent to do, the more that conviction will be there and pressed home in, in tremendous ways so that sinners rebels, backsliders, can know the reality of their situation, feel their damnable condition, and not remain in a place of apathy or indifference that would keep them rushing on to hell. So we're familiar with this verse. I probably shared it somewhere in these uh, various uh, services that we've been having. But uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So what happens is, is you have these men that are baptized in the Holy Ghost. You know, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is there with speaking in tongues, but the power and the presence is resting on them, but nobody gets saved because of that. What happens is, Peter, under the anointing of God, who is now just prior to this cowering, now stands up with holy boldness and anointing on him that brings the truth of salvation and convicts the people to such a great extent that they are crying out. And of course, when we have things like this, we can't read the emotion that's there. But the pleading, the pleading, what must we do to be saved? If we are hostile to God, if we are at war with Him, how do we change this? And of course, the reality of what happened there was 3,000 were saved, added to the church. They didn't go, and, you know, Peter didn't go up there and says, I want to see a hand raise. Anybody here, you, you, want, to, you want this kind of face, just raise your hand. No hand raising. I mean, you understand, they were being confronted with the reality of their hostility against God, and no little hand raising is going to take care of that problem. It had to be true, full, wholehearted repentance. And so when it says that they were added to the church, that is the idea that they were added commitment. They were baptized, not that baptism saves, but especially in that culture, baptism was a costly, costly act because many of those people that were baptized that day would be disowned from their families, would be rejected, would be hated, would be ridiculed by their friends and all kinds of other hostilities that would come against them. The co-founder of Salvation Army, Catherine Booth, Booth, her husband was uh, William Booth, and they referred to him as the general, General William Booth. She said, the greatest want in this day is truth that cuts. Convincing truth. Truth that convicts and convinces the sinner and pulls the bandages off their eyes. That's what the Holy Spirit does when He is released, when we allow Him, when we embrace His move and His presence, that He starts ripping the bandages off people that they have put over their eyes so they can't see the truth, so they can continue in their rebellion against God and think it's okay. Have their cutesy little things saying, well, you know, God understands my heart, or whatever. All the things that we can say to try and justify. But when God shows up, we're stuck. We're going to have to deal with what He's confronting us about. He's, the people are going to have to deal with the reality of conviction. And the greater that conviction is, the more they're confronted with the need to have to respond. And that's either going to be a yes or no. It's either going to be a surrender or rebellion. And so you do have that in revival, authentic revival. You have people that flee from it. 
I have accounts of revival where the conviction was so great, people are running to God and people are fleeing at the same time. There was this one meeting, I can't remember off the top of my head where it was where I was preaching at this church, and just God was moving, but it was a hard, stubborn church. I'll tell you what, man, it was like I was preaching against a, a brick wall. And so I'm at the end of my message and getting ready to give an altar call, and the pastor's wife breaks in with a prophecy. I mean, it was like taking what the message had preached and just pressing it home. At the same time when she finished and I opened the altar up, I says, God has spoken. The altar call's been given. Get to this altar and repent. And at the same time that people were running to the altar to get right with God, people were running out of the church because they didn't want to get right with God. They were being confronted with the reality of their sin, and they're saying, I don't want to give it up. So the other thing you have is you have conviction, but you have guilt. And I don't want to necessarily say that they're different. You know, guilt, conviction, same source type of thing there. But conviction is a state of having committed an offense, crime, or, or wrongdoing. And in relation to us or to Christianity, it's rebellion against God. So we are feeling the guilt of that. It's feeling the responsibility or remorse for some offense, crime, or evil that we have done. And so we get this feeling of guilt, and we all know what guilt is. We all know what it is. We've all experienced it. Sometimes it's been intense. Sometimes it might be just a little tinge in our conscience where we know we said something wrong or did something wrong, and we are, we are convicted over it. We have this guilt. Well, there's a positive expression of this where good comes out of it. There's a negative expression, not of guilt, but response to guilt. And I'll deal with both those just briefly here. But with King Josiah... King Josiah is this young boy that becomes king of Israel. And when he starts getting into his later teen years, he starts really seeking after God. And eventually a revival comes. And the very source of the revival that happened was he called for the rebuilding of the temple. And as the temple is being rebuilt, the workmen end up finding this place where a portion of the scriptures, at least, had been hidden because Manasseh and the evil kings before him went and were destroying the word of God. So they get it, and they bring it to King Josiah, and it is speculated, we don't have evidence, but it's speculated that what was given to him was Deuteronomy chapter 20 and 21, which is, which is, blessed are you if you walk with the Lord, and he goes through all these blessings, but then he says, cursed are you if you forsake the Lord your God, if you do not serve him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Cursed will you be in the city. Cursed will you be in the country. Cursed will be your children. Cursed goes all through these things. I mean, you want to talk about it in a dangerous place. And what happened, Josiah heard that word, was guilty, knew his guilt, felt the conviction of God, and he responded to it in a right way. And so it tells us in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, because your heart was responsive, this is the Lord speaking to King Josiah, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. So guilt produced life, produced forgiveness reconciliation with God. But guess what? You have a negative example. 
I think one of the most sad in Scripture is Judas Iscariot. Three and a half years walked with Jesus. He was used when Jesus sent the apostles out and gave them the anointing to cast out devils and heal the sick and so on. He was among that number. He saw those miracles. God was working through him because there was a time he did walk with God. There was a time he wasn't right fellowship, but his faith, his, his, his dedication to God was not firm, and he allowed idols in his heart to come up. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5, it says, When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he was condemned, he realized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He felt guilt. He felt conviction. So their reply, okay, so the, 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 the priest's reply was, what is that to us? What's That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left and then went and hanged himself. There's guilt, evidence of guilt, that was not dealt with. You see, when conviction comes, either we are going to let it produce the good that God has designed it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He produces good. The conviction is good. The guilt is good. It's good. It produces good in us when we respond through repentance. It does destruction to us if we rebel against the conviction and we say no to God. That's what Judas did. Then you have, which I know is very uh, familiar to you, but you have godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this guilt that produces a godly sorrow, a mourning over the sin that we have, have, have con- committed, it produces in us the repentance. It's a good thing. This is the purpose of it. The greater the Holy Spirit is in the church, the more that conviction is going to go and move on the hearts, and the more people that are really, whether they understand or not, that are seeking the truth and wanting deliverance from their life of sin, the more that conviction will draw them to the place of repentance and produce good that comes out of it. So you have a wonderful example of it with King David. You know, Psalms uh, 51, and in the beginning of that chapter, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. The man had hardened his heart. He was backslid. King David was in a backslidden condition. You can't walk right with God and commit adultery and murder, right? I think that's pretty convincing there. So here he is in that, but he thought he was special. He thought he had the right to do things that other people didn't because he was a big, famous, important king. And so he committed the sins, brushed them off. A year went by. And then what happens? Because the man won't repent, he sends the pesky prophet. And the pesky prophet comes and confronts him. And he did it in a wise way dealing with a king, okay? Because kings can be very dangerous people because they have the ability to say, okay, you don't live any longer. I don't like what you said to me, all right? So he was very wise, led of the Holy Spirit, and confronted him. And I believe that when... Nathan the prophet was doing this. The conviction of God fell upon David in a moment, and he was overwhelmed with the reality of his guilt because he understood that he deserved the death penalty for his adultery and his murder. He didn't go and say, God, I'm going to offer up all these sacrifices and make everything right. He went and says, have mercy on me, O God. I deserve divine wrath. John Wesley Here's his basic philosophy of preaching. 
Before I preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. Well, that doesn't work in America anymore, does it? Guess what? It still does. It's just people aren't willing to preach it anymore. It's still the truth that changes people, that transforms lives. And then, of course, you have worldly sorrow. And that is sorrow over sin, regret over sin, but it doesn't produce repentance. So you have the man that's the drunk, and he comes home drunk, and he beats his wife, and the next morning he wakes up, and he's really sorry he beat his wife, really sorry he got drunk, and he can go and make all kinds of promises. Oh, I'll never do that again, which is a lie, because without Christ, he's going to do that again. He has worldly sorrow because he's not willing to do whatever it takes to change. Because worldly sorrow doesn't bring about change. It leaves people in their sin. It leaves them in the practice of it. And we need conviction that is going to force people into one or the other, either into godly sorrow because their heart is tender towards God, or into the worldly sorrow where they say, well, I'm sorry I did it, but I want out of here. And we really need that. And that's what God wants. He wants to come to the place where he is bringing people to, the, to a place of decision where they're being forced to have to decide. And uh, we can't manipulate people into this. We can't force people into this. Guess how it comes? Through the Holy Spirit. Yes, He uses the vessel. We preach the truth. We witness the truth. We tell people about Jesus. And, and uh, we must leave it in their hands. But we have to become a people, not just crying out for the Holy Spirit to bring anointing that convicts in the church, but in your own personal life, when you are witnessing to people, when you're telling people about Jesus, that the anointing rests upon you for that same identical purpose. Because what God wants to do corporately, He wants to do individually with you as well. He wants, he wants His presence, His Holy Spirit resting on you so that when you go into that perishing world and you tell people, whether in the workplace or you go to Meadowview or wherever it is that you end up going, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is resting upon you and you aren't trying to force it, I'm going to cram this down your throat, but you boldly, lovingly, and rightly end up saying what is being led of the Holy Spirit to say at that point. Because the love of God wants to speak through you. It really does. He really does. And so you have this example. I'm going to give real briefly these two sad examples of, of worldly sorrow. And the first one is Adam and Eve. Right? Right in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. There's a good expression of worldly sorrow. Trying to hide from God. They tried to hide rather than, than going before him and being confronted and dealing with it. Because you find no repentance in this story at all. You find no repentance in Adam and Eve. Never mentioned. And it goes on. It says, But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I'm not going to go into any more of it, but, you know, the truth came to pass. When he rebelled, judgment fell upon him, and worldly sorrow came, not godly sorrow. Another one that's kind of an interesting story, I think it has an expression of both in it, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, is the woman that's caught in adultery in the uh, in the gospel. And so in John chapter 8, it, it gives the account of it where this woman is caught in adultery, brought before Jesus, not because they love Jesus, but they're trying to trap him so that either he would say, stone her, and if he stoned, told him to stone her, then he'd be going against the Roman law that says they didn't have the right of execution. And uh, if, if he said, don't stone her, then he would be going against the Mosaic law. 
So they thought, man, we got this guy. He is in trouble. He can't get out of this one. And they didn't know who they were dealing with. They didn't know. They didn't understand. You know, so the wisdom, this, the, you know, God in flesh and blood, his wisdom like we can't even understand, and so simple. You know, he just stood up and says, okay, you have you, who of you that has not sinned, you can cast the first stone. And so it says, beginning with the older, they dropped their stones and walked away. Guess what? The older you get, the more sins you know. I mean, you have a bigger history. The younger you are, you've got a lot of sins too. But you may not see them as well. So what did he do with the woman? Well, we don't see repentance necessarily, but Jesus knew her heart. And what he said to the woman was, was kind and affirming, but strong. He says, go and stop your life of sin. And so within the same thing, you have what I would say would be an expression of worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Now, conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. And you know what happens when we try to do it? We beat people up. Okay? That's all it is. We beat people up because we're trying to be the, be the Holy Spirit and we're doing what He's forbidden us to do. Now, we are to be the messengers. We are to proclaim the truth. We're to proclaim what He wants. Not everybody is saved, comes to salvation in the same identical way. Some people come by, by hearing the reality of their sin. Others come by hearing the wonder of heaven and what God has for them. And, and you know, that's why we have to become people that are truly sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that we can, can speak to the people what they need, and we can do it with boldness under the anointing of God. And so this conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the more He's in our midst, the more He will do what He said He will do. So in John chapter 16, verse 8, I already referred to this, Jesus said, when He comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and of judgment. When He comes. Now, not that He wasn't there. All right? So the Holy Spirit had been there. Every person that had ever been convicted from the very beginning was convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit. But what was being said was there was going to be a new time. The Holy Spirit was going to come and dwell in the lives of people, not come upon them anymore like in the Old Testament, going to come and dwell within them. And through them now, that work of the Holy Spirit could be poured out in a greater way to touch the lost, to speak in greater ways to them that we might see more people saved. And I believe that is what God really wants to do. He wants us to be truly Pentecostal, Spirit-filled people living under the anointing of God that when we proclaim the truth of who He is, People fall under conviction, and we see people get saved. Now, we are in a terrible, terribly hard time. I'll tell you what, America has gotten harder and harder and harder because it's giving itself more and more into sin and rebellion and horrendous evil. But it doesn't even come close to the power of God. You understand he's greater than the evil in America. One I just really love, I've preached lot on it over all my years of being an evangelist is where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. I'm just going to touch on this very briefly, but, you know, so the very first thing that happens, he sees the Lord in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord seated on, the tra- uh, on a throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. And, you know, without getting really deep into that, that train was symbolic of his authority because in, uh, in Asian in Middle Eastern countries, according to the length of your robe, would be your position within the government or uh, being uh, feudal kings under a, a conquering king. And so here his robe is so huge it fills the temple. 
He's king of kings and lord of lords. He understood when he saw this God and he was experiencing the holiness of God. He was being undone. The holiness of God was good, perfect, pure, holy. And that holiness was gripping the man's heart. So when God showed up, God did what God does. And that holiness gripped that man's heart and was tearing him to pieces. So he said, woe unto me. And that is a very serious word, a very serious phrase in, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Be, prior to this, there were eight woes that Isaiah had already prophesied. Some, you know, some of your Bibles might say this was his calling. This wasn't his calling. He was already prophesying, all right? He's already a prophet. This is God confronting the man of God, shaking him up to help him to understand, says, you are not adequate to the call. Your adequacy, your sufficiency comes from me. And if you are going to become my voice that's going to proclaim some of the most astounding prophecies about Messiah, then you have to have those lips sanctified because those lips of yours are not sanctified. That's why he said this. He says, Woe unto me, I'm, I cried, I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Undone. I'll tell you what. Lucky Isaiah. Not lucky. Blessed Isaiah to be there. Did it hurt? I guarantee you it hurt big time. But you know what? Then he sent the, the Lord sent the angel to take this hot, bloody coal representing Jesus the Lamb of God, and touched his mouth. And I'll tell you what, it burned out the sin and it burned in him a fire. And you see, that's what we need. That's what we need. Some really, really astounding revivals took place in uh, the United Kingdom in 1859. And that revival actually began in New York City in 1857. It began in New York City through a convert of Charles Finney. Because for a time, Charles Finney was pastoring, uh, had started a church in New York City. And so this man got saved there. Jeremiah Lamphere was his name. And the man gets saved, radically saved. And he just starts, he's a street preacher now. He just starts, starts having these prayer meetings. And this revival was a prayer meeting revival. I mean, at that time, New York City was 700,000 people. A huge city at that time. Over... 10%, roughly 10% of the people got saved. It swept through America and near a, a, a million people came to Christ. When it jumped the pond and went over to England, to the UK, 500,000 were saved in England, 300,000 in Scotland, 100,000 in Ireland, and 100,000 in Wales. It was radical. And some of the most astounding stories actually come out of Ireland. What was referred to as the Ulster Revival, and Ulster was a northern province in Ireland. The service began with singing the first two lines of a hymn. Then suddenly a strong man fell to the floor. He was removed from the service. Instantly there was an amazing manifestation of the divine presence. The whole house was filled with the glory of the Lord. The singing had to cease. There was nothing through the house, but sobbing and sighing, some calling for mercy, others rejoicing in the sin-parting God, the Lord was present in mighty power. The sense was such that no mortal could describe. After hours, the minister could not get the congregation to leave, even after he pronounced the benediction six times. Eventually, some started leaving, and they left singing, others crying to God for mercy with friends. 
Others were smitten down on the road on their way home, crying for mercy through the whole night. One after another found peace with Christ. And they immediately began to point others that were still in the agonizing grips of conviction. Started pointing them home. You see, we have watered down in America horrendously the work of the Holy Spirit. Horrendously. We don't understand what we've done because we don't want conviction like that. Just make them feel happy about themselves, okay? Let them have some positive experiences. You know, we've gotten ridiculous. And we've gotten more than ridiculous. We've gotten apostate. You understand? It's serious stuff. We don't understand. By not, in, 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 by not embracing the work of the Holy Spirit, we keep the Holy Spirit from the church that does the work that only the Holy Spirit can do, which is to convict. You go, into, you go into accounts of revival. I could take you ones from, from Africa. I could take you ones with Charles Finney. Times they were in, in, in conviction, agonizing conviction, for three days or a week. Agonizing. I'm not talking about just a little bit of guilt upon them, but the conviction so heavy, they are just in utter agony because the Holy Spirit has come. And I guarantee you, when people experience that kind of conviction... And they really surrender to Christ. They are not quick to backslide. That's why you have in the Irish revival, the Ulster revival here, ministers' reports, one after another, after another, after another. And they would say, this many people got saved, and I've had no backsliders. None. Because the conviction was so intense. It confronted people, and they saw the reality of what it is to 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 offend a holy God, and they realize it is the most dangerous thing that they could ever do. And then they understood the wonder of a pardoning God that forgives and restores and redeems. You have here something... Oh, sorry, I forgot to press my thing again to time it so I know how long I'm going. You have this the aspect of the Mosaic Law in the work of conviction. Galatians chapter 3 brings us out, but Paul brings out in other places, but this brings out very strong, says where the law was, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Why? Because we're under Christ. What is a schoolmaster? The schoolmaster is the law. The law says, be perfect. What is the reality of us? None of us are perfect. We find we are lawbreaker again and again and again and again. And when the Holy Spirit starts revealing the reality of our lawbreaking, then guilt rises up. Conviction rises up. Then we are forced to a decision. We're either going to respond with godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. You understand? That's what it, it always does that. God brings us the point of decision, and it is a good God that does that. It's a loving God that does that. Not a mean God, not a cruel God. It is a good God that warns us of the reality of what our sin is going to do, that calls us to repent and to give us the opportunity to get our life right. That is a good, wonderful, loving, merciful God that will give us that opportunity. Now, if people reject that, it's not God's fault. It's not His conviction. It's not the Holy Spirit's fault. It's the individual that rejects God's call, God's mercy. An author, C.E. Autry, said the law and the gospel operate in conjunction with each other. The law reveals one's need, and the gospel provides the answer to that need. This answer becomes the good news of the New Testament. 
And I said, they're both there. The law was given for a reason. It wasn't that the law was to disappear, but the law was to become a schoolmaster, a means of showing mankind the reality of their sin, that they might look upon the grace of God and see the wonder of what it is that Jesus would die for our sins and give us deliverance. Astounding. Astounding how they work together. Remove the law. You remove conviction. And you remove salvation. It has to be there. Because we have to come to the place to see our need of a Savior. If we don't come to the place to see our need of a Savior, then we're not going to go and seek after a Savior. We'll continue in our sin and rebellion because we don't really see it. So churches that don't have conviction, I fear for those pastors. I'll tell you, I fear for those pastors terribly. Because he will hold them accountable for it. I mean, a verse, a couple of verses I know that you know very well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, God has the right to go and say, okay, this is what you are. You're going to go to hell. Right? He has the right to do that because we were all lawbreakers. We all broke his law. We all did it willfully. Right? It was the goodness and kindness of God that brought us the truth of the gospel. So that we can end up saying, as you continue reading there, Paul ends up saying, that's what some of you were. But now you are washed. Right? That's what we were. If we are still that, then we're not right with Jesus. So... When he saves, he literally saves. He saves us, as you know, I preached a, a while ago on, on, on saved and what that really means, and we looked at that. But he saves us from this. I'm not a drug addict anymore. I've not been struggling. You understand? I'm not struggling. Just, I don't want to go back and get high again. It's gone. Now, I'm not going to say there aren't other things I struggle with, okay? Temptation is real with all of us. We all got those battles. But there's a God that gives victory. He really does. It's just we have to want it. And he really helps because the deeper that conviction is, I'll tell you what, it is really good. It is really good. So, it was early Sunday morning, May 30th, 1742, at the northern port of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And two strangers went to the worst part of that port city, the poorest part, contemptible part of town, it was said. And they go out there in the town square and they begin to sing the hundredth psalm. And as they begin to sing, people start gathering. And after the crowd starts gathering, one of the men began to preach. And he preaches from Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Soon the crowd was over a thousand. And what is he doing? He exalted the holiness of God, the law of God, the justice of God, the wisdom of his requirements, and the justice of his wrath. Then he turned upon the sinners and told them the enormity of their crimes, their open rebellion in their treason and their anarchy. And then he ended up saying, If you desire to know who I am, my name is John Wesley. I will be back here this evening at 5 o'clock, the Lord willing. He comes back at 5. Over 20,000 people are waiting for him. 
You understand? He wasn't giving some wimpy preaching. He was preaching the truth that shook the Christian, but shook the unsaved that brought them to salvation. They saw the reality of their sin. Again, he exalted the holiness of God, the law of God, the justice of God, the wisdom of his requirements, and the justice of his wrath. Then again, he turned to the sinners and told them the enormity of their crimes, their open rebellion, their treason, and their anarchy. The power of God descended so mightily that it is reliably recorded that when the people dispersed, there were over 1,800 people lying unconscious on the ground because they had a revelation of a holy God and their pending damnation if they didn't repent. You know what? I don't think those 1,800 people were ever the same. (laughs) Right? Because we will never... You know, here's something. This is so contrary to American Christianity. We will never, ever, really, truly understand... God's love until we say his blazing wrath at sin. Because the more we see the reality of how he hates sin, the more we see the wonder of Calvary that he would make a way of escape. We don't have a little problem. You understand? People that are living in sin have a nightmare. It's a nightmare, and they don't even understand. They don't comprehend the destruction that is looming, that they cannot escape unless they truly come to repentance. They don't comprehend because they haven't wanted to have a sight of this God that is both holy and loving. But when he sees, when they see him, when they see him correctly, they will see their sin, but they will also see this God that is so willing to pardon, so willing He wants to pardon the wickedest of sinners. He wants to. It's his passion. It's what Calvary is all about. He is yearning to go to the worst of the worst, yearning for them to fall on their faces and cry out for mercy. So that brings us to the overwhelming conviction. Here again, you know, part of the problem in Scripture, it's not a problem with Scripture, it's a problem of writing. It's hard to sometimes get the emotion that can be there. Okay, so... Here's a story. We're going to look at two different things with Peter, and then I'll give one final uh, verse and a couple stories and close. So, Simon Peter's not a disciple. He's just a plain old fisherman, doing what fishermen do, trying to make a living. And uh, Jesus preaching, and, you know, he wants to use Peter's boat to preach from. And Peter just got done from a whole night of fishing. You understand that as commercial fishermen, they fished at night. I guess that's the better way to when you catch more. But they fished all night, caught nothing. Now, you want to think of a bad day, all right? Work a whole day and make nothing for it, right? So that's what he did. He worked a whole night and got absolutely nothing for it. And uh, so I don't doubt he was a grumpy fisherman, okay? I mean, I'm just being honest. I think he was a real grump. And uh, so, you know, there's Jesus and wants to use his boat. And he goes, ah. I just can imagine he's fussing and not wanting to. And, you know, so anyway, okay, you can. And then when he's done preaching, what's he doing? He says, let's go out fishing. And going, uh, what'd you do for a living? Oh, you were a carpenter? You don't know fishing. You, know, you, you want to go out fishing? I fished all night, caught nothing. There's nothing out there right now. You know, but I, all I can imagine is just the look on Jesus' face. And he looked at him 
And uh, I'll tell you what, he just, you know, it had to, had to, to mess with you big time. And uh, so went out fishing. And guess what? Okay, he caught this humongous amount of fish, so much that the boat was going to, to, to sink. And so then this is what happens. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I guarantee you it wasn't a bunch of smelly fish that did this. You understand? It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit that was waiting, all right, waiting for the miracle to open his eyes to see. And when he saw, the conviction flooded into him, and it was so overwhelming, he's saying, depart from me, depart from me. This is hurting so bad. I see that I'm a wicked man. But yet I'll guarantee you, at the same time where he's saying, depart from me, there's something in him saying, I am experiencing something so beautiful, so good. Just don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. And so now Peter's been with Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus is getting ready to go to Calvary. We know the story. Peter made the big boast, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows this day. And that's exactly what happened. But the, the account in Matthew adds something here very interesting. He says, then Peter remembered the word after he denied Jesus three times. And he remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Conviction. The Holy Spirit wasn't there trying to beat the man up. I guarantee you, it wasn't about beating the man up. But the conviction was there. And you know, I think that conviction rested on him three agonizing days. I mean, can you imagine what went through his mind? I'm a coward. How could I have done that? I followed him for three and a half years, and then I run away. I'm a, I was afraid, and all the things that, that just abusing himself and, and all that. That's not what God wanted him to abuse himself, but he wanted to show this man the horrendous reality of his sin so that he could become a stable voice in the early church. So the man needed to be broken of his pride, of his self-will, of his arrogance, and those things. And it didn't eradicate it there. I guarantee you, Peter still had a lot of problems with it. But it made one major blow to it. Made a major blow to it. The final one I want to give is actually a parable. And it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's a parable, but it brings out a truth that is very powerful. And what it is, is two men go to the temple to pray, a, a Pharisee, and he has all these self-righteous prayers, and I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector and all those other bad people. I fast twice a week, and look at how wonderful I am, God. Okay? But then we turn to the tax collector. A tax collector in the temple. That is radical. That means something's going on with this man. And it says that he was beating his chest. Most translations say, be merciful to me, a sinner. But that's not what the Greek is. That is actually a terrible translation. You know what it says? You know what the Greek says? He's beating his chest. And he's saying, be unto me an atonement. When was this taking place? In the, either in the morning or evening sacrifice, when the atonement was sacrificed being offered up. And he's there at that time. He says, be to me that. I need forgiveness. I need atonement. And the only thing that can bring this to that point, to understand 
our tremendous need of atonement is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that manifests the reality of our sin and rebellion against God. It's the only thing that can do it. Because no man can convince of that. That's the work of God. So let me give you another story from the Ulster Revival. At these meetings, many convictions have taken place. Even strong men have staggered and fallen down under the wounds of their conscience. Great bodily weakness ensues. The whole frame trembles. Oh, it's a heart-rending sight to witness. With wringing hands, streaming of t- streams of tears, and a look of unutterable anguish, they confess their sins in tones of unmistakable sincerity and appeal to the Lord for mercy with a cry of piercing earnestness. This is one of the ministers. This is part of his report. He goes on and says, I have seen the strong frame convulse. I have witnessed every joint trembling. I have heard the cry as I have never heard it before. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon my sinful soul. Lord Jesus, come into my burning heart. Lord, pardon my sins. Oh, come and lift me from these flames of hell. Conviction. That's what we need. But let me close with this one. It's kind of a funny one, but a serious one. I think it kind of pulls a lot of this together. It's about a man of God. His name was David Morgan. And this would be of the 1859 Welsh Revival. So David Morgan was a well-known preacher. One day, Mr. Morgan entered a public house, a bar, a saloon, and spoke to the number of men who were smoking and drinking there. After earnestly entreating them to flee from the wrath to come, he asked them if they would kneel with him in prayer. Okay? So he went in the bar not to get a drink. He's preaching to them all. Now says, let's all get on our knees and pray. All right? After earnestly entreating them to flee from the wrath to come, okay, around tables, they, they gather around tables strewn with pots of liquor and pipes. They knelt with Morgan and began to pray. When he rose, he found himself alone in the room. They had all fled. Meeting the, the landlady on the way out, she says, Oh, they will soon be back after you are gone. After three days, when they had not returned, she went to a magistrate and wanted, the, wanted to stick the law on him. The magistrate replied, I advise you, madam, to let them alone. I have an idea that these men get all they pray for. And we had better not meddle with them, or they may pray for you and me and pray us right out of the world, too. Indeed, my own wife is beginning to pray for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? That's a dangerous man, right? David Morgan was a dangerous man, and they knew. That's what we need to become, dangerous men and women. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pray for Holy Ghost conviction. Holy Ghost conviction in the meetings, Holy Ghost convictions on Sunday mornings, Holy Ghost conviction at at Meadowview when you're ministering there, Holy Ghost conviction when you are ministering to people in your own personal life in in various situations, Holy Ghost conviction that can do work beyond what you could ever do, but yet that does not alleviate you from the responsibility to be the voice speaking. You must still open your mouth and speak to them. Yes, there'll be times you won't say anything and the conviction can fall upon them. I could give you all kinds of counts of that. Tremendous what God can do. But He's looking for obedient people that will say, yes, I will. And you just look to be the individual while you're praying, God, move, convict this one of sin, show them the reality of who you are. 
and of their terrible, terrible danger. And so that's what I want to do. I want to pray about one thing tonight, about conviction. 